don't want your small business to fail or maybe your business has failed in the past and you want to avoid that mistake moving forward, well, if so, this episode is for you. We're going to cover the five reasons why small businesses fail. I sit down with Henry Doss. He's the serial entrepreneur, investor, and business coach where we are going to cover what those most common things that lead to failure are so that you can avoid them and set your business up for success. In addition, we're going to talk about financial intelligence and what that really means and why it is so important for you to really grasp. And last, we're going to talk about infinite leisure time and how that is how you measure success. I'm William Glass, CEO and co-founder of Ostrich and of course your host of the Silicon Alley podcast. If you have not already, go ahead and pound that subscribe button so you get notified when episodes air every Friday. And on the Silicon Alley podcast, it's my job to talk to entrepreneurs, VCs, and top performers to understand what it truly takes to grow and scale a business. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Silicon Alley podcast featuring the Henry Doss. Are you interested in growing and scaling your business? Welcome to the Silicon Alley Podcast, where you'll hear from entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and top performers on what it truly takes to grow and scale a business. You'll walk away with actionable insights you can apply in your own business and life. Now to William Glass, the CEO and co-founder of Ostrich, and your host of the Silicon Alley Podcast. Henry, welcome to the Silicon Alley Podcast. Super excited to have you on today. I'm super excited as well. Thank you, William. Yeah, absolutely. We were just chatting before we hopped on and you have a class tonight going back to school. Can you talk a little bit about uh, about that? I just had my 40th college reunion and I'm in a 60 hour <laughs> Zoom class to become the world's oldest real estate salesperson. Although I've discovered, as I've said on a couple of other podcasts, that I am nowhere near the world's oldest rookie um, real estate salesperson, not by a long shot. <laughs> like there's a lot, there's 160 people in this class that's, you know, it's three hours a night, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday for like six something weeks, kind of mandatory by the state of Connecticut. So uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting, a little, <laughs> little rusty. I'm, I'm, I haven't done my homework for tonight. We're talking about contracts. So I sure hope the teacher doesn't call on me. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, Given how hot the real estate market is currently, I uh, I am not surprised that there's a lot like 160 people in your Zoom oh, yeah. class right now trying to get in the game and great time to be, you don't even need to be an agent now. You just have to sell something and, you know, or have something to sell and then, uh, you know, you'll you'll do well as a as a seller, but it's a great time, I guess, for, for agents at the moment. Uh, I've done a lot of real estate. I've bought uh, a loft in New York City, a house in, in Westchester, this house here in Connecticut that we just recently bought. I've also sold a bunch of stuff, built a couple spec houses, but only as, you know, as an outsider. So now I'll get an opportunity to kind of see what it looks like from the inside. And um, uh, yeah, once you're, it, it's a little like any sort of entrepreneurial business. It may be fine. You can read all the books in the world. You can even have experience with other entrepreneurs, but until you flip the script and start looking at it from the inside out, all bets are off. You know, it's yeah. a different thing. It is. It's interesting. It's definitely, a, it gives you a different lens of, of looking at real estate. And I'm, I'm curious to dive in because you've got a lot of experience, have built some successful businesses over, over the years, coached a lot of people and mm -hmm. written about personal finance. Obviously we just talked about real estate, done, uh, done a number of different deals in, in terms of real estate, but I'm curious 
why, why now? Why are you going to get a real estate license and how does this fit into everything else that you do? Well, just just for full disclosure, this this has nothing to do with the fact that it's kind of the Wild West in, in the real estate business. So I am old enough to have seen the feasts that we're having now and the famine that we have had. There's a, a common conceit that real estate can only go up. It is untrue, patently untrue. I saw it when we bought our place uh, in Greenwich Village back in the early 90s. The, uh, the buyer had bought it in the mid eighties during that particular boomlet. And they took a 33% haircut. They had paid $450,000 for this loft in 1986. We bought it in 1992 for 300. So if you think that real estate can only go up and if you think that these prices are gonna stick, think again. 91, obviously 2008. Hopefully your listeners are, are old enough to remember that. Although who knows, they could have been in grammar school or high school. They didn't, they didn't really see it up close and personal, but their parents did. Uh, and it's sobering. A lot of people have a lot of money in real estate. So my goal is I want to get access to the MLS. I want to see deals before they become really public knowledge because, you know, I have an interest in maybe buying and flipping, maybe adding some to our, you know, personal financial portfolio. So I have a lot of ancillary reasons, which have nothing to do with the fact that the world market's gone crazy. Makes, makes a lot of sense. So Henry, you're not planning on uh, going and showing houses and uh, trying to get listings I'm, and I'm selling other people's houses. I'm going to put a suit on and, and, and drive my fancy car and, uh, and take people. Yeah, I'll be happy to. I know people who want to buy. Since we just moved here, though, I don't have any roots in the community. So I, don't, I think the possibility of getting listings as a, as a seller side, since that's really networking related, and I think um, a lot of the people that are in the class are underestimating the value of a network. I have a wide network, but I know people on, you know, all around the world. They're not going to be giving me their listings. I don't really know anybody local. So if you're 20 something and you have a small network, uh, you need to expand that network. Otherwise, um, you're, you may be doing a lot of showings for other people's listings and you're going to take a fraction of a fraction as a commission. I, I would argue that there's easier ways to make a living. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I kind of want to go back to the point where you mentioned, you know, real estate doesn't always go up. So my background, I started a fintech company. And part of the reason is because of that, my parents' relationship fell apart because of money in 2008, when the financial crisis there, there blew up, their relationship mm -hmm. blew up along with it. They didn't have common goals, exit strategy and all that kind of stuff and got caught up in the madness. But so I think that that's a really important point. And I'd love to, to dig into a little bit of your why in terms of why you wrote a book about personal finance, why you coach people on personal finance and why that is important to you. Well, the genesis of it was I was at a conference in Bangkok, about 300 people, a lot of um, location independent businesses, digital nomads. Uh, these are people that I coach. There are people that have started businesses, in many cases, successful businesses. Sometimes they're struggling. They're where I was, say, 25, 30 years ago. And they need, they need help. They need a leg up. They need a sounding board. They need a lot of things that they, you just can't really get by looking in the mirror. So I was at a table with a bunch of coaches 
We were talking about the inefficiencies of one-on-one coaching. As I've said many, many times, and even though this is what I do, there's a lot better ways to earn a living than trading time for money, right? And that's what I do. But I enjoy coaching people one-on-one, and I'm lucky that I'm at a place now where where finances is not the primary motivator. It's always a motivator, but it is not the be all and end all. You know, I've been, I've, I've followed the rules that I wrote about in my book, FQ Financial Intelligence. And as a result of that, I'm in a very blessed position, but I've had my ups and downs. I've had, um, uh, you know, major setbacks. I've had, uh, um, including in 2008, uh, when you know the the world just completely fell apart, but also uh, 2001 uh, when I broke up with my business partner and the um, the Nasdaq crashed and dot bomb, I go all the way back to 1987. So I was talking about a BHAG, you know, the uh, Jim Collins big hairy audacious goal. And so we went around the table and they said, "What's your BHAG?" I said, "You know what? I've always wanted to take my." financial knowledge that I have from the time I was a teenager and, you know, encapsulated, build a course. And they kind of looked at me and said, you know, you're not, you're not a spring chicken. You might want to get on that. Cause everybody was like half my age. So uh, I did, I came back I started writing it. I wrote a um, 18 chapter uh, table of contents. I started in chapter one and I finished in chapter 18. Then I even added a chapter 19 and I got a dozen people to volunteer. I created a couple pods and I tested the material and the course material that I built. And just, just about when I was ready to go live, they said, you know, you should make this a book. A book will be your lead magnet. So that started me down the rabbit hole of how do you publish a book? And I'm not going to bore you <laughs> with all the details, but it took about a year and I learned a lot. Now I know how to do it. So I'm working on a second book right now. So hopefully I should be able to do that much more expeditiously. And, uh, and that was it. That was really the motivator. Share my wisdom. Some of it is, it's, some of it is a money memoir, right? Okay. Uh, it was very, there were some sections that were really cathartic to be able to kind of get my thoughts down and allow, those, allow people to learn from those anecdotes. I, liked, I believe in the gestalt of sharing your experiences as opposed to telling somebody, you know, you should do this, right? I don't do that in my coaching practice. I don't do that. All I can, all I can do is go through the mechanics of it, share with you if I had a similar circumstance and tell you what I did and what the outcome was and allow you to learn and make your own decisions. And that's key. I like that. I like that. I think it really plays into how we learn best, right? We, we really like narratives as, as human beings and stories and learning from whether it's our own experiences or from other experiences, stories are a great way to, to tell that and what are the ultimate stories experiences and what you've actually gone through yourself. Yeah, I've written 11 screenplays. Uh, I, use, I use the three-act structure and the story nar- narrative a lot in coaching. I'm working with a couple of different people right now on putting together pitch decks to, to raise investor capital. And so, you know, I remind them that uh, you're telling a story, the potential investor is, is watching a movie that you're presenting here. So there are certain things that you have to do. And it's easy for people to connect to because everybody's seen movies, many, 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 many movies. I've probably seen thousands of them. And they all follow a basic three act structure. And the most important thing is you gotta know what the genre is within like 30 seconds. Is it a comedy? Is it a tragedy? Is it a satire? What is it? I got to know that because that sets expectations. 
right? And then I have to have an inciting incident. There's a whole whole bunch of a playbook that you have to run. But if you don't know that, you know, you're you're clueless. So I see a lot of pitch decks where they're 30 pages long and they're throwing a bunch of crap and they're showing me who their management team is on slide number two. And I'm like, I don't need to see the credits at the beginning. They stopped doing that in Hollywood. They stick them at the end, right? <laughs> no one cares who the actor or the director, the best boy, you know, the key grip. Nobody cares who that is at that juncture. I, I want to get into the rhythm of the movie. That has to happen. Yeah, it's just a minor yeah. thing. That's an easy adjustment. Just drag that slide to the end. Yeah. So what what similarities do you see, obviously, beyond telling a really great story between writing screenplays and, you know, business and and how you can present yourself or from a strategic perspective of of building your your business as an entrepreneur? Well, think about the inciting incident. That's the thing that kicks off the action in the first act of a film. Well, if you're an entrepreneur or if you're a wantrepreneur, you know, someone who's working in cubicle world and says, you know, I don't want to do this. Right. I see everybody out there. I want to I want to become a FBA, you know, fulfilled by Amazon reseller. I want to sell SEO, some tech thing. Right. There's a there's so much stuff going on in the tech space. Right. I want to build a better mousetrap within that world. Well, there's something that's got to kick off the action. Right. What is it for me going back 30 years to when I started my first business? It was, I had some low hanging fruit sales. I had someone who was, you know, dropping sales on my lap and it's like, yeah, let's do that. I can do that and I can make some money. I really had no clue what I was doing. You know, same way when I wrote my first screenplay, I took, I took some courses, I read some books, but again, you got to get in the game, start doing some stuff, start doing some deals. That deal went well. Oh, that one didn't go so well. What did I do wrong? Do a little postmortem on your deals and start to can kind of build up a CV. There's the only rule is that there are no rules, right? There's some basic things that you have to know. I got to know how to manage money. I'm in this business to make money. So I got to understand balance sheets and cash flow and P&Ls. And I got to understand what a bank or a lender is going to need from me. And sorry, that's my dog Elvis. I think he's hungry. You, there's basic stuff that you have to understand that a lot of times I run into new entrepreneurs and they're just, they're just clueless right? Yeah. Um, so they got to so, learn themselves up on that. So what are some of those key mistakes that you see, you know, either first time entrepreneurs or people that are, you know, just early on in the process? What are some of those, those mistakes that you see entrepreneurs make? One of the big mistakes is just being undercapitalized, right? Need to secure a credit line of some sort, even if it's just on your good looks. And you need to do that early and you need to do that before you need it. You can bootstrap a business. Everybody talks about bootstrapping a business. Basically, I'm going to take the profits that I make out of cash flow and I'm going to plow it back into the business, right? First year that I was in business, I made, uh, I left a $60,000 a year job back in 1991 and I traded it for a $12,000 entrepreneurial job that first year, right? Yeah. It took me three years before I was making more than when I left. But I tell you, that's three really agonizing years there. I was lucky that I had a wife who worked and I was backstopped and we didn't have a lot of expenses at the time because we were, we weren't dinky, but we were, you know, dual income, even though mine was meager, one child. So 
but then we bought that first apartment and all of a sudden I got a mortgage and maintenance and taxes and this and that and the other thing. And, you know, you put yourself right into a pressure cooker. But um, in hindsight, I wouldn't have wanted it any other way, right? An empty belly is a great, great, great motivator, <laughs> even though it sucks while you have it. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, interesting, Henry. So talk to me about the desire then for yourself, like, you know, focusing more more on your story in terms of you left a $60,000 a year job to start this business. It sounds like you had someone come to you, start dropping deals in your lap. And you're like, well, maybe I can make some money doing this. But talk to me about like, why you chose to pursue entrepreneurship and building a business full-time? Oh, I, I think that was preordained. I mean, I grew up around doctors and lawyers and business owners. And that's, you know, I modeled what I saw. And there was also the arrogant belief that I could do it better than other people, right? I mean, people who are listening to this podcast, uh, ask yourself, are you smarter and more motivated than the person you are working for? If we could have a show of hands, I bet you there'd be a lot of them would go up. I mean, I've got three kids. Two of them are, are in the working world, and they're already starting to complain about how the people they work for are idiots, right? There's a concept called the Peter Principle. There's a book from, I think, the 1960s or so, which basically says that uh, people in the managerial ranks will rise to the level of their incompetence, right? There may be some folks out there nodding and saying, yeah, right? <laughs> But there's also a lot to be said for being just a master of your own domain, right? I live and die by, by my wits, by my savvy, by my skill. Again, I wouldn't want it any other way. But having said that, I am a firm believer that you should use corporate America as a training ground. So if you're in your 20s, you don't necessarily have to rush to start an entrepreneurial business because you'll learn about business um, within the nest of some a small to medium size, or even some large size company. I worked for a Fortune 50 company when I graduated from college, and they did spend a lot of money on my training with no guarantee that I was going to stick around. I'm not saying that you should be opportunistic or predatory. You're doing a job, you're getting paid a salary, uh, they're benefiting, but you're benefiting as well. And take that knowledge and use that as a springboard, but make a plan, figure it out. Well, you know what, I'll do this for five years. I'll put a little bankroll together. I'll make sure that I get a little credit history. So when I want to borrow some capital for the company, maybe I'll even find somebody that I want to partner with, someone who could complement my skill set. And then all you really need is a kick-ass idea when you're off to the races. No, I love that. And I think that's a great point, right? There's a lot of companies that are willing to invest in, in you when you're younger, early on in your career, and you can learn a lot of the things that do work well across whatever business you're doing, right? Like I mm -hmm. was in corporate America, worked for a company that was in the S&P 500 and one of the top sales organizations mm -hmm. called Gartner. And they really, sure. really focused on, you know, training great salespeople on its executive sales, selling to CTOs, CMOs, CEOs of different companies. And so you learn a lot through that process that I think is really, really invaluable and just how someone at that level expects things to run. And when you bring it down to an SMB level or wherever you end up in terms of your entrepreneurial, if you can operate at that level of the things that do work well in corporate America, you can really, really surprise and delight customers in the future. You can. And, and corporate America understands that their best and the brightest are not going to stick around. They know that. Right. The ones who are entrepreneurial are eventually going to have to feed that, you know, have to scratch that itch, that urge. They will. They understand that. Yeah. Um, and they're okay because they're getting value from you while you're in their employ. 
and you know what goes around comes around sometimes you end up circling back years later and maybe you're a vendor for that company you use the contacts that you have a lot to be said for it absolutely yeah there's some businesses that operate that way i was spoke with someone that had been at AT&T forever and that was exactly how it worked. That's All how they worked. The, <laughs> uh, the industrial military complex works that way. Yep. There's, a, there's a circularity to it. My dad used to say, uh, the people you see on the way up are the same people you're gonna see on the way down, so be nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like that, I like that. Henry, on your website, you've got something called the top five reasons why businesses fail. I'd mm -hmm. love to, you know, dive small into businesses fail, but small maybe, businesses. It's all, maybe it's all businesses, but I, yeah, particularly small businesses. <laughs> Sorry, small businesses. Could you, could you lay out what those, what those things are? I'm curious, you know, I think the audience would really benefit from understanding what are some of the things that they should be cognizant of and what are those things that you see mm -hmm. that cause sure. businesses to fail? I, I can do it pretty, pretty concisely. Uh, number five is confusing passion with commitment. You know, passion may be the thing that really draws you into it, right? If you read the E-Myth, Michael Gerber's iconic book, Sally Bakes Pies, and, you know, a year later, Sally's in the pie-making business. She's not making pies anymore. Everybody said your pies are so great, right? But now she's doing payroll and this and that, and she hasn't baked a pie in a year. So if your passion is to bake pies, you may want to continue to bake pies in your kitchen and let people marvel about it and tell you that it should be a business. But if you're not committed to making it a business, because there's going to be a lot of ups and downs and there are going to be days where you're going to get kicked in the teeth. Yeah, passion fades, but commitment is, you know, why I just celebrated my 30th wedding anniversary to the same woman. <laughs> and, the first wife, and the first wife. Yeah, I have to qualify that. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was for, not to say we're not passionate about each other, but we're not teenagers anymore. Not that we were teenagers, but we're not in our 20s anymore. Yeah, we're committed. Number two is messaging. If your messaging is off, if people don't, if people ask you, you know, what do you do? That's, that's a problem. So your message needs to be clear, concise, digestible, easy for people to understand. Because if the first thing out of their mouth is a question that should have been, you know, obvious, then you've got to work on that. Number three, which most people think is usually the top one, but it's not, is money, right? We just talked about it. Uh, get a credit line when you don't need it. Don't wait for credit facility. Even if they sort of just sit there gathering dust, that's a good thing, right? What do you mean by that? Can we dive? I want to dive into that really quickly. Sure. So get a credit line. If I just started a new business, I don't have... You know, I don't have any assets besides whatever money I'm bringing, and maybe I've got some revenue. Do so you know people who do? Maybe. People who might maybe, back maybe you, not. who might care enough. They maybe they're even related to you, right? When I started, when we started our first business, we my business we went to my um, business partner's father, and I wrote about this, uh, you know, in that in that little um, PDF, and also in my book. We asked him to borrow money. He said no. Said, I'm not going to loan you any money. He said, what I will do is I'll allow you to borrow my credit worthiness. So what does that mean? He said, I will guarantee a letter of credit to one of your vendors for 25,000 bucks. If you default, they're going to come after me. They'll be made whole. I'll be angry. Uh, so don't default. Uh, but otherwise, it doesn't cost me anything. It's just a letter of credit. He just signs it based on his credit worthiness. We did that. And then before you know it, we were up to 200,000. He had parked some treasury bills for us but we were able to build up a track record. And eventually on our own good looks, my partner and myself, we got a half a million dollar, what was called a flooring line at the time. 
yeah, we had to sign personal guarantees. We were on the hook, but that just took, that took a couple of years to go from basically nothing to having a half a million dollars worth of credit. Um, it was slow and steady and methodical. You start small and you work your way up. Yeah. I mean, like, I met a guy who ran his business on, he had 60 credit cards. Uh, this is when I was a compact dealer and I was out at a conference in San Francisco. He said, I run this business. I, I do um, a half a million dollars a month and I run it on 60 credit cards. I was <laughs> dumbfounded, but he had a system in place where he knew exactly what they were, what their credit lines were, interest rates. He knew which ones he could he could delay with. Looked like a lot of work, but hey, whatever manages. What you don't want to do is say, you know what, equity, if my business fails and the equity in my business turns it turns to spinach, it's okay, I don't have to pay it back. So what I'll do is I'll give equity away to people in return for their services. And I've had clients who've done that and I know other people who have done that. And I have told them, this is a very expensive way for you to finance your business. Because sure, business fails, you're off the hook. But what happens if your business is the success that we want it to be? You have just given away a piece of the rock for nothing in many cases. Don't do that. Yeah. That's a rookie mistake. Don't do that, right? There is yeah. a time and a place for converting the equity into some cash flow or some fungible asset, but it ain't when you start. Borrow yeah. some money. If the business goes to crap, pay it back, dust yourself off and start again. Because if that's what's holding you back, the fear of losing your money, then it will. And I know tons of, especially entrepreneurs who can never get over that hump, never get over the money hump. And that's why they're not real, in my opinion. I don't mean that derisively, but you're just not real. You're yeah. kind of, you know, you have dreams of business, which is great. Every, every journey starts with a dream, but at some point you got to do something. You got to put some capital at risk. And if it blows up, you got to pay it back. It's just how the world works. <laughs> no, yeah, and I appreciate you sharing that, that Henry, that example, because I think that there's the glorified kind of way to, to fund a business is go raise money from a venture capitalist or an angel investor and get all this money, at least in the tech space, right? That's kind yeah. of like, oh, no, of course. We, you know, it's the sexy yeah. thing to do versus just let me go get a credit line from the local credit union that I, you know, been a member at and be able to personally guarantee a loan and just go see if we can actually you know, build this thing through that method. And I think that's a really, a really interesting and unique insight. And I'm glad that you brought up how expensive giving away equity actually is if you are successful. Look, you, you want to raise money. I was just on a, on a call with uh, somebody uh, earlier and they were talking about a, a deal that passed by that uh, they had a $70 million raise. Well, I, well, I tell you what, people are going to put 70 million bucks behind you. They own you. You are theirs. You may think of yourself as an entrepreneur, but sorry to be the bearer of bad news. You have just become the employee of a venture capital firm. Just <laughs> how it works. So be and careful. Who is an employee of their general partners too. Yeah. So be careful what you wish for because you might get it. Yeah. Now there's a time and a place for it. If you're in a capital intensive business or if you're in a business that that has a trajectory that wants to be that that has the potential to be a so-called unicorn or all those stuff. Yeah, at some point in time, you may have to raise a bunch of, of cash in order to make that happen. But there's a time and a place for that. And hopefully you'll you'll be on the on the right trajectory that when that time presents itself, you'll recognize it and you'll do the right thing. Right. Absolutely. 
So that's number three. Number, uh, number two is hiring. Most people suck at hiring. I did this presentation back when we could actually do presentations with live people. And I asked a bunch of people when I was doing the, doing the presentation, what was your last hire? How did it work out? There wasn't a single positive story. Oh, it's my cousin's dentist's nephew, blah, blah, blah. It's all, it's all this, you know, seeming low hanging fruit. Nobody went through a diligent exercise. Nobody followed the rule of hire slowly, fire quickly. Uh, well, they'll come around. They'll learn the job. It's like, no, you, you know, like, you know, a good melon, you know, you shake it a little bit and you'll know whether you should buy this one or not. So do not let a bad hire fester into a bad long-term employee. Yeah. Do you have any advice for how you don't make that mistake? I mean, it sounds like don't hire someone just because they're you know, you, you need someone right. And they're the first person that comes knocking on the door. Well, first, first you got to define what are my expectations? What am I looking for? Right. Uh, I had a client a few years ago, he hired for culture and was looking for someone who had a culture fit. So he hired for culture. They didn't know how to do the job crashed and burned. Ah, they, uh, I've learned my lesson. I'm not going to hire for culture. I'm going to hire for skill. And then he hired somebody for skill. And they clashed with everybody on the team. <laughs> right? Pendulum swung too far the other direction. Yeah, exactly. Everybody's overcorrecting on, on things. I'll use a sports analogy because I just, um, I just like to do that uh, every once in a while. So people are rolling their eyes. But in the NFL, they have a draft. You know, it's a meat market every, every spring. And there are two prevailing philosophies. Philosophy number one is you draft for a position. Right. I really need a left tackle. My quarterback's getting killed. So I'm going to spend my draft capital to buy the best possible left tackle available. And then the other, the other philosophy is I hire the best available athlete, regardless of position. I don't have empirical data to back this up, but the, the franchises that have been successful over the long term always do the latter. They will hire the best available athlete regardless of position that's what they do so when you're looking to hire yes it's important to come up with an sop for what it is that you want the person to do it's nice when the person has some experience in that right if you're hiring an accountant it'd be nice if they'd actually done accounting before you know that's a good thing not that accounting is rocket science but it shows that they have an interest in it but it doesn't necessarily mean they're a great accountant, right? So you've got to determine, and this is all on you in the hiring process, right? You've got, you really have to define what is it that I'm looking for? And then how am I going to measure them once I get them in the door? Because just going through that hiring process and stuff, that's the tiniest little tip of the iceberg. Now, all of a sudden they work, they work for me, they're on their payroll. And all of these other factors come in, like culture, like how do they fit in with the team? What's their work ethic like, right? Are they disruptive or are they groupthink or are they something in between? So you've got to decide, here's how I'm going to measure their progress. Again, I'm talking about an entrepreneurial business where you as the owner are involved in all of these things, not, not like a monolithic company that has an HR department. I mean, absolutely. It makes sense because I... I think the other the other thing is understanding what resources you have, right? So maybe I can't afford the best talent 
or based on the size of the company or where you are in terms of the stage, I mean, that's another factor, right? Another limiting, sure. potentially limiting factor to, to, to weigh in that. Well, hiring this, you know, you, know, you, you, you hire the, the super fast wide receiver, right? Uh, the game breaker, the, the money guy, the Odell Beckham. And then, you know, cause I'm a Giants fan, Giants season t- ticket holder. So yeah, you do that, but then you discover that your quarterback's flat on his butt half the time and, and it doesn't matter. He's just <laughs> running through space cause you can never deliver the ball to him, right? So there is something to be said for making sure that your the, the competence level of all of your employees meets some threshold because if you hire that superstar but he's weighed down by a team that's not functional. He's not going to last long. You don't have to fire him. He'll fire himself. Yeah. He'll say, I made a mistake. As much as I say, hire slowly, fire quickly as the entrepreneur, same thing applies to you as someone who's working for somebody. And I I had to do it once. I, I, I switched jobs before I started my own company a few years before that. And I lasted 10 weeks. I recognized that I had made a mistake. Instead of trying to, sh- sorry about that. It's all right. Elvis can dog. let Elvis go. Elvis is in the building. Yeah. <laughs> he is definitely in the building. Yeah, I fired myself. I walked in on a Friday and I said, you know, this is not working out. And you know what? They were blindsided. They were dumbfounded. They did not see the same thing that I saw at all. They were blissfully unaware. And if I had never said a word, I could have stayed there and collected my paycheck and been miserable. Well, you know what? Life is too short to be miserable. Don't be miserable. Be happy. Love that advice. All right. So that was number two, right? Oh, that was number two. Drum roll, please. <laughs> number one. Number one's an easy one. Uh, I mean, I ask people sometimes, but people don't don't get it. Your idea. Reason small businesses fail is your idea sucks. It's just as simple as that. You never should have done what you attempted to do. There was no legs. You know, I, I often say, uh, so, so people pitch me ideas all the time and have over the years. Usually the first question I ask is, who's doing what, what you want to do? And they'll say, oh, nobody. I say, <laughs> oh, well, that is a massive red flag because you want to know why? Because you ain't that smart. You ain't that smart that you knit this out of whole cloth. If no one else is doing this, there is a reason It's because a bunch of other people either tried it and failed or a bunch of other people looked at this idea, saw that it had no legs and said, I ain't doing it, right? So that's the thing you have. I I advise people all the time that you have to look at your idea and you've got to, your idea is a punching bag and you need to beat the crap out of it. You need to find every single discernible reason why this idea sucks that will save you a huge amount of heartache later on down the line. I, I wrote, I think I wrote this actually in the PDF where I said trillions of dollars, including my own, have been saved by not executing dumb ideas. Yeah, makes sense, yeah. There's, uh, if, you, if you watch the show Shark Tank, there's some ideas that get on there that you just, you know, you smack yourself on the forehead, like how do they not see well, that, how bad that's this actually, is? That's actually a little different because the thing that's interesting about Shark Tank is who are you, are you betting on the idea or are you betting on the entrepreneur? And I've seen those guys. Now, again, you got to remember, this is entertainment, right? Yeah. This is not <laughs> real. Reality shows are the most unrealistic shows that there are in television. They're all, they're all scripted and whatever it might be. But if you look at them, sometimes you say, well, that is a monstrously bad idea. 
but I really like the guy. You know, the guy's sharp or he's got something. There's just some intangible about this idea, uh, this guy, this idea, his idea is crap, but I'm not going to hold that against him because not everybody's idea people, right? You know, you look at McDonald's, right? If you know the history of McDonald's and Ray Kroc and, and all of that stuff. Well, Ray Kroc had the worst imaginable ideas for McDonald's food. He had a pineapple burger. Every one of Ray Kroc's ideas was a total, utter, ignominious failure, right? The Big Mac came out of a franchisee in Pittsburgh. They invented that. The filet of fish sandwich, I believe, came from a vendor in Maryland, right? Their franchisees were the ones who were, had their feet on the street. They had the tentacles to the customers. They were there on the front lines. Ray Kroc was, you know, buying the San Diego Padres and, and, um, and counting his millions. He had no idea. He was not the guy for ideas. Not a, not, not a chance. What his genius was, was recognizing that what the McDonald's brothers had there could be packaged and formulated. And now there's 30,000 plus of these franchises throughout the world. And not a single McDonald's franchise has ever gone out of business. That's pretty amazing. That is. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I think that's a, yeah, a great point, right? He was, he was an operations guy, right? He, he, Ray Kroc, right? That's what, that was his, his, uh, his expertise was being able to yeah. take what, you know, the fast food model and apply it and scale it and use the franchise. And he was also an apex out. predator. I mean, he, he had sharp <laughs> elbows and he elbowed, he elbowed the McDonald brothers out. Right. But I can understand that because he was, I think 56 when this started. And so, uh, he was smart enough to know that, uh, time was against him. There was no time. He wasn't in his twenties. You know, I got time. I got time to be a nice guy. I'm not, you know, defending him, but he was a wonderful success story. But yeah, it's like I got to get on with this. I can't be polite because pretty soon I'm going to be dead. So. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I've got limited time left, and that's my that's my limiting resource right so now. If so if I got to bulldoze the world, I, I think of it all. I mean, I'm 61. I'm almost 62 years old. I figure I got 20 decent years left on this planet. So. I don't have time. I'm not in my 20. I don't have time to fiddle around with stupid ideas or stupid people. Just, I'm just keeping it real. I, I just, I just don't. Yeah. I'm not going to waste a, a, a minute if I can help it. It makes a lot of sense. Well, on that front, Henry, how, how do you define success, right? You've built up these businesses. It sounds like, you know, the, the coaching practice is going really well and you're able to focus on the people and the, the clients versus trying to bring in every, every single dollar. You're writing screenplays, mm -hmm. you're getting your real estate license, playing golf, getting my real estate license, playing golf, baseball cards, right? Settlers of Catan. Yeah, I play, like, believe me, I build my own little, we, we, we have a mega, mega game going here with like three sets, you know, merged together and we create our own boards. Yeah. We play almost every night. So, and that's really what it is. I, I for me, it's uh, again going back to the concept of being the sort of master of of your own domain. I can do what I want when I want within reason. You know, I've got kids and I got a wife and I've got obligations, so I can't just jet off to Stad because one, I don't know where Stad is, but I heard it's a pretty cool place. Two, I don't have a jet, nor do I have the desire for that. You know, having having realistic, rational expectations out of what you want from your life, I think is really the starting point. You know, I had a client a number of years ago and I said, you know, what's your goal, right? What's your goal? You know, what's your like personal, personal financial goal, right? I want $10 million. 
So I said, great, I'm going to put my magic coach's hat on. I'm going to sprinkle some magical financial fairy dust on you. Poof, you've got $10 million. So I'll ask the question again, what's your financial goal? And he paused for like an elephant's pregnancy. And he said, $50 million? <laughs> I said, I swear that's a bona fide true story. So I said, yeah, we need to talk about this because marketeers for financial services companies, they all do the what's, the, what's my number, right? I've even seen commercials mm -hmm. where they pop this number off. And that is an utterly overly simplified vision of, of what financial wealth matters. I, I even, I think it's even on the cover of my book where I says there's a, there's a yawning chasm between being rich and having a lot of money, more money, more problems. I know some rich people who are just miserable, <laughs> right? What they don't have is money problems. What they have is everything else, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Money problems can become <laughs> all consuming. There's no question about that. So that nothing else matters. It is, it does have a way of um, reorienting your priorities. Mm -hmm. Certainly. But you've got to define for you because no one else can define it for you. There are people out there like me who can help you, but you've got to define what is important, right? You know, I want to be able to just manage my schedule as I see fit. I was talking to somebody recently. Actually, I think it was today in one of my 500 Zoom calls. Uh, we were talking about scheduling. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm oblivious to the days of the week. Some of that has to do with COVID, but, but that, that actually existed way before COVID. I mean, if it's a Sunday and I want to spend 10 hours working or writing or doing this, I do it because the opportunity presented itself. But if it's a Thursday where everybody's, you know, doing business and I want to go play golf, if that makes sense, I'll go play golf. Yeah. That is a massive luxury. And I tell you what, you don't, I'm not Jeff Bezos. I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not objectively rich, rich by any, by any like true metric. And I've done the, I mean, I'm okay, but I'm not a one percenter. I'm not a 0.001 percenter, but yet I, I do well enough that I have the flexibility to do that. And that's how I've constructed my life. And it makes me really happy. I'm glad that you, that you brought that up, Henry. I, in your, in your bio, that's one of the things that you, uh, that you start off with is uh, in your infinite leisure time. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> it sounds like that is something that's really, really valuable to you and that you value is the ability to, if you want to work for 10 hours on a Sunday to do that, or if you want to go play golf or spend time with family or wh whatever it is, yeah. having that flexibility is what's the, the value metric. Yeah. The, I, I, I refer to the period from the time your first child is born until the last one leaves the nest as the blur. It goes by in a blur, right? I can say this now at, at my somewhat advanced age that I couldn't have, couldn't have said 30 years ago because I was getting pushed and pulled and, you know, in all sorts of different directions. So I don't want to be gl too glib about this because people may think of themselves, oh, that's great, you know, you get to do this. It took a lot of hard work to get to this point. So it wasn't always this way. I, I don't know how many people have, have mentioned the four hour work week, right? I got to bring it up. It's like the elephant in the room. In fact, I'm thinking of writing a book that's called the one nanosecond work life, right? <laughs> that's it. You're going to work for one nanosecond for your entire life and that's it. And then you'll never work again. I mean, it's look, it's a great title. I'll be honest. I haven't read the book, but I probably know enough about it from what people have talked to me, including my own children. I don't know that that's aspirational, right? 
if you talk to entrepreneurs, and I read an article about this recently that a friend of mine sent me, the, the number one reason that they believe that they are successful in their entrepreneurial business is they have purpose. You have to have a purpose. And it really needs to be a purpose that, that reaches to your core. Making $10 million or banking $10 million as your purpose, I would argue not a great one because the next purpose is going to be 50 million and you want to play that game and chase that down the rabbit hole and end up one of these, you know, miserable King Midas, like, you know, who's got all the money in the world and not a single friend, but they never bothered to take the time to develop relationships. You've got to ask yourself what's important to me. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. I think that's a really, a really great point. What are some of those questions? What are are those questions that you should ask? Like, cause I, so there's, I can't remember what study it is, but it showed that like college students in the 1960s, the number one thing that they were interested in was like de- developing a philosophy on life. And now it's just getting into the best college they can get at a fortune, you know, one of the FANG companies or one of the top consulting firms so that they can then go make a bunch of money. And that's kind of the top priority for college students. And you're getting at that 1960s sort of like, what's my life philosophy and the way that college students were thinking about the purpose of of what they valued. Yeah, the, the, the knock on college is that they've gotten away from teaching critical thinking and turn more into glorified trade schools, right? They wanna make money, they wanna churn through their students as, as quickly as they can, give them the sort of basic education. And then if they really wanna specialize and really learn something, they'll go to graduate school where they gradually figure out what they wanna do when they grow up, right? where the, you know, I went to college in the seventies and I remember I was an electrical engineer. So I had a very, very rigorous and regimented program yet they had still built in a number of credits for all these ancillary things. I remember taking geology. Why do I need to take geology? What does this have to do with anything? Right. Or, or English There's certain, there were like three English courses that I was required English. I'm pretty darn good at English. Yeah, it's my native tongue. But they they wanted to make sure that they just weren't putting out a bunch of geeky little robots. And there's a lot to be said for that, right? Having a having a well-rounded diversification. The more input you have in these various things, the, the easier it is for you to formulate what that core philosophy is, right? You'll especially see that when you find a mate. If you're you know young and single and you eventually the nesting instinct kicks in, you want to have some core, I believe that you have to have three, in order to get to 30 years of marriage, you've got to have three core beliefs that line up. You can be all over the map with a ton of other stuff, but you better have at least three core beliefs that are inviolate. If you can do that, then I think you can weather anything that comes down the pike. Are there, are there three specific <laughs> core beliefs or are you just saying in general, three core no, beliefs? No, they're going to be unique to you. So okay. like my wife and I, one of them is inclusiveness. We're both big on that. That's a huge, almost trigger issue that goes back to childhood. So live an inclusive life. You don't discriminate against anyone for any reason, except as Martin Luther King said, the measure of their character. You know, if they've been weighing the balance and find found wanting, as my dad used to say, they have bad character. You're okay to discriminate people who have bad character. You you are, but no other. There's no other reason, right? You're allowed to discriminate against assholes if you part. You can bleep that out. <laughs> you, that that you're perfectly forgiven. 
don't spend your time with them. Don't waste your energy on them. Sometimes you're going to have to deal with them, when, especially as in the entrepreneurial world. And I, I only had two operational strategies when I was um, running sales um, at a, you know, early on at, at a grassroots level. Two modes were either friendly or professional. If I liked you, I was friendly. If I didn't like you, I was professional. There was no third <laughs> alternative. That was it. So I want to pivot back, Henry, here, getting close to the end of our time sure. um, towards personal finance. And you kind of alluded to this in your, you know, when you talked about how you define success and what you find value in. But I'm curious if you could succinctly or just, you know, kind of put a, put a bow on it. How would you describe your relationship with money? I, I, I look at money as a, as a tool to facilitate the things that I want to do in my life. It's just, it's just a tool, no different than a hammer or a screwdriver. It's just one of the many, many tools that's available to me. And you know what? It's not even the most important tool. You know, my brain is the most important tool. My body is probably, you know, that my brain is one and my body is one A. So I have to take care of those because they're going to have to last me my whole lifetime. So I need to take care of them as best as I can. You know, it's amazing to me sometimes when I see people who de- who have means and deprive themselves of some of what life has to offer because of, say, scarcity mindset or something like that, which is not to say that I believe, you know, eat, drink and marry or tomorrow ye may die. You do have to have limits to things. But I can say, certainly in my adult life, I don't think that there's anything that I've ever, any decision I've ever made because I said to myself, I can't afford it. You know, little things. Yeah. I, di- I didn't, you know, when we bought our first car, when we had just gotten married, I bought a, a $22,000 Acura, right? Now, this is, again, going back 30 years. So I don't know what you can buy for 22000 these days, maybe a used car. But I remember we went, you know, my wife said, let's go look at the Mercedes. You know, they had just come out with this E version. And it was like in the low 30s. And we, we could have afforded that. But it was, I said to her very matter-of-factly, it doesn't fit our image. It's not the car that we should buy. And I was happy to save the money. Yeah. And I was perfectly content with the Acura. It was a wonderful, wonderful car. It was the right car for that moment in our lives. And so you need to look at that. But that's coming from the perspective of somebody with a, a healthy vision of themselves, of who they are. I'm not trying to impress anybody with the car that I drive. If they're impressed by that, something as silly as that, is this really somebody that <laughs> I need to have a relationship <laughs> with? I mean, maybe. I mean, I don't know, but no, I, I could care less, you know, yeah. you know, I asked my mom, I remember years ago, my mom passed away uh, about 10 years ago. You know, I asked her why, when my neighbors got a new car, I asked him, uh, you know, why, why we didn't, he says, well, ours is paid for. My mom was a depression baby, nuts and bolts, salt of the earth, whatever you want to call it. For her, the vision was I sleep well at night, knowing that what's in my garage, it may not be fancy, but it runs well and it's paid for. And that's all that I really care about. I like that. It's getting down to understanding what it is you truly care about. And that's going right back to the things. whole core things. What are the things that drive you? Right. And there's a lot of things that are going on. You know, uh, there's so much social media. There's so much input with, with people. There's so much FOMO. There's so much look at me, look at me, look at me. I had a long dis- two hour discussion with a friend of mine about in- influencers. I was trying to get an explanation as to what exactly is an influencer. 
and why am I being influenced by it? We're not going to waste your time with that. <laughs> that all seemed like completely vacant. But the conclusion was that this is someone who is modeling for you a life that you want to live, right? That's what an influencer is doing. And my attitude is you got to create the life. You know it. It's inside of you somewhere. And you may need some help. You know, you may need a coach or you may need a mentor. You may need something to help you figure out what that authentic idea of yourself is and put your blinders on to all this crap that's trying to influence you. Don't let it. That's uh, definitely a challenge that we face in our day and age. The instant You millennials and, and you Gen Zs or whatever. I always <laughs> laugh about the Gen Z. It's like, who started at X? Now, apparently, it's called Generation Alpha. So... I just heard that term the other day, which I'd never heard, but I guess we wrapped around the alphabet. And now, <laughs> yeah. so now we got some runway because we now we got A and B and C, yeah. you know, we can go <laughs> on. I'll be long since dead and we'll probably just be a generation F. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so last two things that I've got for you, Henry, what would you say the best investment is that you've made? Well, the best investment is an obvious one is investment in myself, certainly. But let's let's push that aside. Let's talk about it. And you're talking about sort of a something more fungible, more tangible, like a business or a, a security or there's know. no wrong answer. It's it's whatever your answer is. So well, I, I leave that open. Would, my knee-jerk answer would be the investment in myself and my family. Certainly. Investment in my education, which my parents paid for. Those are and the investment in in the you know the the support group that I have, the friends and family. Yeah. yeah. I mean, those, those again, for based on the, on the um, sort of the, the rules I live by, those are absolutely the best investments that I've made. Makes sense. I had a hunch that's where you're going to go, but. Yeah, uh... Well, after an hour of the conversation, it's like, what was I going to throw you a curveball? Yeah. yeah. I think the best investment I was made. GameStop. Was GameStop. No, I'm kidding. Was, was Facebook. <laughs> Actually, Facebook has exploded. Um I looked at it the other day and I hadn't looked at the numbers and I'm like, oh my God, when did this happen? Yeah. They beat yeah. their little antitrust case, at least for the time being. So we'll, yeah. we'll see how long yeah, that they lasts. They go up. They, as my mom would say, they go up, they go down. Yeah. So, Henry, <laughs> yeah. would you say is the, the dumbest money mistake you've made? Because, you know, we don't always make good decisions. Oh, the dumbest amount of money mistake was about 15 years ago when I partnered with a guy, a contractor, and we started, a, a, we built a couple of spec homes. And then he jumped off of a perfectly good bridge on purpose, leaving me in what can only be described as a shit show, uh, just an absolute financial calamity. And, and the reason it was such an ignominious failure was I should have known better. I was risk blind, right? So even people who would put themselves out in the world as being you know, financially savvy still make colossal blunders. So when you when you watch the CNBCs and all these talking heads who are out there, you know, influencing people, and you notice that they never ever talk about anything that they may have done wrong, there's a reason for that. And you should ask yourself, do I buy that? Do they have credibility? Well, it was one of the things that I felt was very important when I wrote my book was was to show both sides of the argument. You're going to make wonderful, wonderful, fantastic, incredible deals should you live long enough. But you're also going to do a bunch of face plants. Own them. You'll learn a lot from them. And mistakes tend to stick around 
a lot longer than your successes, <laughs> right? I could talk about all the money I've made in Facebook, but I tell you what, you want to know about the $500, you know, loss I took on trading some crummy little stock. I'll give you chapter and verse on that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Which is, it's interesting that that, yeah. Anyway, we, there's so many, so many places we could take that. Like, <laughs> why people curate and I don't know, but uh, I'll leave that's that for a, a that's second. A, that's for a whole nother podcast. Right? <laughs> yeah. We don't have another hour. That's for like, a, that's hour, for like an maybe. all day marathon podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, Henry, I really appreciate you sitting down. This has been a lot of fun. I want to leave you with the last word. So if there's anything that you want to leave the audience with, and then also please let listeners know how they can connect with you outside of this podcast. Okay. My little, my little commercial. So one of the things I do for the podcast and, and I don't know if I shared this on the air or before, but I've done like uh, over 90 of them since the lockdown. Uh, done a lot of them because you can't, you can't do stuff in front of live audiences anymore. So I've sort of adapted, pivoted to that. So if you go to podcast.dasknowledge.com and it's D-A-A-S, that's how you spell DAS, I give away a free month of coaching. So four half hour sessions, I give that to podcast listeners as a freebie. We can talk about money. We can talk about entrepreneurship. We can talk about how to build a really good settler of, of Catan board, whatever it is. It's your time. I give it away freely. I've had you know lots of people take advantage of it. It's a good opportunity for you to sort of dip your toe into what a coaching relationship is like, even if you're not ready for it. Right. Even if you're just a entrepreneur and it's like, uh, when you were talking about biggest mistakes, I could, I could add a, a, a B, which was not hiring a business coach. Again, it's very self-serving, but it, I mean, it sincerely not hiring a business coach sooner when I started my first business, because I didn't hire a business coach until I wanted to break up with my partner. Right. Mm. At that point, it was too late. <laughs> right yeah. diet already been cast so um and that's yeah so that's it and you, if, and if you want to download my book you can download it for free if you just go to dustknowledge.com somewhere in, in my website there's a lot of words on, on my website you'll find a link to the five reasons small businesses fail and a couple of other little tripwires and you'll find my book and you can download it for free so awesome that's it well Thanks so much, Henry. And I, I appreciate the fact that you're, you know, giving away and letting people taste the the coaching, uh, the coaching drink from experience. the trough for free. Yes. Yeah. It's because <laughs> uh, I think there's a lot of people that, uh, that, that throw coaching or mentor on their profile. And I know that from there's my no barriers lens, to entry, anybody it, can hang up a shingle and say they're a coach. And, and unfortunately it's, it does, it does the, it does the business a disservice because there's a lot of folks that shouldn't be doing that. Yep, exa exactly. And so the ability to actually experience it firsthand, I think is is invaluable. So Henry, thank you so much for sitting down. This was a, a lot of fun. We we hit a number of different topics and I appreciate you opening up. Yeah, and, uh, we ping ponged all over the place, but it's good. I like, uh, I'm a non-linear thinker. So. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> thank you, William. Absolutely. On your way out, please share the podcast with others. It's the only way that the community grows and others hear these incredible stories from entrepreneurs and top performers. And of course, pound that subscribe button so you get notified when episodes drop every Friday. I'm William Glass, CEO and co-founder of Ostrich, and of course, your host of the Silicon Alley Podcast. Have a very profitable day. You got no time to waste, but still you hesitate. Caught in a circle saying, I'll never leave this place. Ooh, somewhere.